Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Live Wire Radio. We are backstage, well, really, in an alley behind the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We've got a great show coming up for you. Mike Pesca is here, as is Nicholas Kristoff, and this guy, jazz legend Bill Frizzell. Bill, this show is about the unknown. I'm wondering, what's the biggest leap you've ever taken into the unknown, besides coming to this alley? I mean, that that could be it, actually. You know, I, I don't know you, really. I don't usually go into dark alleys with strangers. This, this is quite a leap for me right now. This is part of our process, how we break the guests down to get the best performance out of them, is we, we create what feels to them to be a fight-or-flight type of event, and then when you realize you've survived it, you will play the show of your life. I'm hoping so. I'm going to be so thankful to get back in there with my guitar. <laughs> Well, we are going to be really thankful that you're on stage because we're looking forward to it. In fact, speaking of this radio show, let's get out there and do it. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Livewire! Yes, it's Livewire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. With New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff, the GIST host Mike Pesca, and music from jazz great Bill Frizzell. All that, plus comedy from our troupe, Does This Sound Funny to You? And our house band, led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now, he's the most unknowable host in public radio, and that's saying a lot because Terry Gross is a real puzzle, Luke Burbank! Wow, thank you. Thank you so much. We are talking this hour about unknowns, and we have uh, some guests coming out who approach that topic from some different angles. As we learned from the wisdom of uh, Don Rumsfeld, there are all kinds of unknowns. There are known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns, (laughs) which are the really terrifying ones, because you don't even know that you don't know it. (laughs) And we are programmed as human beings to try to avoid the unknown. It feels very stressful and very scary to us, and yet I find myself having sort of the opposite problem, um, which I'll, I'll try to explain. I am right now about 20 hours into a total midlife crisis. <laughs> I'm being completely serious. It started at like 10 o'clock last night. I got an email from a TV producer. I record these commentaries sometimes for TV, and they sent me the video of one of the commentaries, the edited version, and I'm looking at this video on my phone, and um, all I could think was, how did this 40-year-old dadish looking guy convince the producers of CBS Sunday Morning that he's Luke Burbank? This will not stand. And then I did a self-evaluation, and I realized I'm almost 40, and I'm a father. And that's me on the phone screen, that I'm at the midpoint in my life, which means that the unknown part of my life is only going to get smaller every single day as the known part of my life gets bigger until there's no more unknown (laughs) at all. For those listening in the radio audience, they're confiscating my shoelaces. You can't see it because you're not here, but... um, When I was in my 20s, it was like in my mind, I was in the pregame warm-ups of my life. So if things were not going great, it was no big deal because there was still so much sort of unknown out there. And I, like many people, have been to a lot of therapy in my life. And one of the things I've tried to figure out is how to deal with the feelings of anxiety around the unknown. And now I don't feel like I have enough unknown left. So I'm trying a new strategy, which is when something is unknown to me, instead of freaking out, I'm going to try to embrace it as like a youthful event in my life. So tonight, during the show, if at some point we get totally off the rails, like one of my jokes doesn't work, which has never happened before, but it's, it's still theoretically possible. If there's a moment where you feel like this show has gone into totally uncharted territory, and you see me on stage with like a wry smile on my face, it's because I am just reliving my youth and giving my soul like a Botox shot. So just know what's going on, okay? Um, Speaking of the unknown, uh, speaking of the unknown, our first guest 
was actually a neighbor of mine in Seattle many years ago, and I had no idea who he was. I seriously thought he was a computer programmer who liked to dink around on the guitar. But he's much more than that. Spin Magazine once said he breathes in lungs full of raw fire when he straps on his guitar. He's collaborated with the likes of Elvis Costello, Bono, and Marianne Faithful, just to name a few. His latest record is Guitar in the Space Age. Please welcome Bill Frizzell to Livewire. That is a, a true story that you and I were neighbors, and I asked you once at a garage sale what you did, and you said, like, I like guitar, <laughs> which I really just thought you were telling me about a hobby. And then years later, I saw an interview with you, and I was like, that's the guy from the garage sale. Do you get that a lot? I guess so. I mean, it, you know, that feeling hasn't, certainly hasn't changed. I, I like the guitar, you know? So, <laughs> And it's, you know, you're talking about the unknown. It still is for me. So you still feel when you're about to play, like you're not sure how it's going to go? Oh, man, I have no idea. <laughs> I, know, I know what song I'm going to play, but it still feels so much like it did, I swear, you know, when I first started to play. You know, with music, it's just, it's infinite what's out in front of you. you. You can't get to the end of it, so you have to start where you are. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like it really comes natural. It's a struggle, you know? So. I don't know why that's so encouraging for me to hear, but it kind of is. I mean, it's sad for you, but it's encouraging for the rest of us. <laughs> One of the, the things that I've always been struck by with your music is how much of the the, the pacing, or maybe you'd call it the phrasing, the parts when you're not making any sound, is that uh, something that you've also evolved and developed over the years? Is that something you think about when you're playing, or are you just in some kind of a flow? I, I mean, it could have something to do... You can see how I'm struggling to construct these... put one word after another and make a sentence. I can see it, your glasses are fogging up yeah. a little bit. <laughs> Uh, no, but I think people, music, they play what they, I, I speak the same way I play in a way. There's a lot of space. <laughs> <laughs> well, what song are you going to play for us? The first record I bought, I think it was, that I actually bought with my own money was a 45 single of the Beach Boys it had Little Deuce Coop on one side and Surfer Girl on the other side. So I'm going to play, try to play Surfer Girl. All right. Well, take it away. This is Bill Frizzell on LimeWire.
That's Bill Frizzell, right here on Livewire. He will be playing with his guitar in the Space Age Band Friday the 30th of January at the Aladdin Theater, again, right here in Portland, Oregon. This is Livewire from PRI. Thank you for letting us inside your head for a while. Uh, we are definitely going to really try to put things back where we found them. Our show is sponsored in part by New Belgium Brewing, this fall featuring their new Pale Ale Tour de Fall, brewed with pale malt, caramel, and chocolate rye. It's a deep amber beer that sounds a little like a candy bar. But who needs a stupid candy bar when you have beer? <laughs> More information can be found at newbelgiumbrewing.com. We will be right back. Livewire is brought to you in part by Ergo Depot, who reminds you that way back in the day, the human body evolved to move. And it turns out that even if you're exercising for an hour a day, that's still not enough to undo the damage done by sitting for 11 hours. You can solve that with the right sit-stand desk and task chair that keeps your body in motion while you work. I mean, sure, it's not as much exercise as slaying a woolly mammoth, but woolly mammoth slaying is really overrated. Those things must have smelled like kombucha-marinated gym socks. Visit ErgoDepot.com and discover a more evolved way to work healthy. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI Public Radio International. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. We're talking about the unknown this week of both the known and unknown unknown variety. Our next guest is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He's been a New York Times columnist since 2001. Risking his own life, he's written illuminating work on Tiananmen Square, the genocide in Darfur, and was one of the first journalists to raise the question about WMDs in Iraq, which I'm sure he feels foolish about now looking back because, of course, they found tons of them, and that's why we had to go over there. Anyway... <laughs> Anyway, his most recent book, written with his wife, a journalist, Cheryl Wu Dunn, is called A Path Appears, Transforming Lives and Creating Opportunities. Please welcome Nicholas Kristoff to Livewire. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask you right at the start... Before you went to Harvard, before you were at Oxford, before you won Pulitzers, before you won that Olympic diving medal, which I assume <laughs> at some point you probably did, before all of that, there was what I read as a sheep and cherry farm in Yamhill, Oregon. What did you learn there that you are carrying along in your fancy life you have now? Well, I think I'm probably the only person in the New York Times who knows how to arc weld or inoculate a lamb. Um, <laughs> Those are not hugely useful skills in Manhattan, though. Do you feel like your Oregon roots have informed how you have reported on stories and related to people? You know, to some extent they have. I mean, Yamhill County is, in many ways, going through some real economic difficulties. And there were a lot of uh, blue-collar jobs a generation ago in logging, uh, in factories. Those jobs have gone away. And today there's a real problem with lack of opportunity with economic inequality. And a lot of my friends from high school are struggling. And that's maybe one reason why I tend to write about issues of inequality and social justice. Uh, this show is about unknowns. And one of the things that you've done so expertly in your career is you've really brought some unknowns to a Western readership, uh, you know, about how life is lived in sub-Saharan Africa and in China and in, in so many other places. And often, like you said, you're writing about people who are really um, the have-nots in, in this sort of global environment. Does it ever bum you out? Are you ever going to write a column about a plucky cat that found its way back <laughs> to its owners? You know, when you go and, you know, side-by-side side with the worst of humanity, you see the very best. And I remember one trip to eastern Congo, the most lethal conflict since World War II, and I, I met a warlord there who was slaughtering people. But the person who left the deepest impression on me was this incredible Polish nun who was single-handedly feeding orphans, educating kids, staving off the warlord. And I managed to come back from eastern Congo, really my faith in humanity reaffirmed. And so in a strange way, you know, we're not tested in this country. In other countries, people are. And so... It is possible to cover the worst of the world and actually emerge kind of optimistic about humanity. How do you talk to a warlord and, and not get, you know, warlorded? Well, I mean, are you nervous the whole time you're talking to a warlord? Because I feel like I would be. 
it's this very awkward dance because you want to preserve your credibility as a journalist, and you want to ask tough questions. On the other hand, you want to survive. And <laughs> so, um, and I mean, I, I try not to pull punches, but the one compromise I make is that I often will wait for my wait till I'm out of the warlord's area of control before my column appears. That is a good, good way to do things, I think. Okay, so your new book um, is called A Path Appears, and it's described as a roadmap to global citizenry. I'm wondering, could oh, it ever be well, that we would actually try to be, like enough of us would try to be good global citizens that this thing would work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really do think that we are, in fact, in many ways altruistically motivated, that we are social creatures, and we do yearn for some kind of... You know, we want to have an impact on the world. And the truth is that now there are a lot of ways in which we can do that, really simple ways. And so one of the things we try to do in the book is talk about very ordinary little things. One, one of the things my, my kids once did, gave me for Father's Day, best present ever, they gave me a, a sponsorship of this giant Gambian pouched rat. Uh, and Another uh, one? Yeah. <laughs> Father's <laughs> Day again. <laughs> You know, and you don't wear it as a tie, but oh, what you okay. do is um, it, uh, it has an incredible sense of smell, and in, it can detect landmines, and so in two hours it can detect, uh, cover, clear an area of mines as much as uh, humans can cover in two days. And, you know, I had never had a giant Gambian pouched rat before, and the idea that it was out there clearing landmines in Mozambique and Angola, boy, that was a great, birth that was a great Father's Day present. We are talking to Nicholas Kristof, a New York Times columnist here on Livewire Radio. He's also got a new book out, as we mentioned, called A Path Appears, which he's co-written uh, with his wife, fellow Pulitzer Prize winner. I guess you guys were the first husband and wife Pulitzer Prize winners. Yep. Do you guys each get a Pulitzer, and is one slightly higher on the mantle than the <laughs> other one? Somebody slip, like, a matchbook <laughs> under one of them? Um. You know, we, we each get a certificate, um, but it's kind of embarrassing to actually put them anywhere. So I think they're in the, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure actually where the certificates are. I, that I'm always happens with Don't my Don't tell Pulitzers. Columbia University that, but yeah. Uh, one of the uh, other things that jumped out at me about the book was this, an issue that is so preventable. It's $250 to fix it, and it's something that in America wouldn't even create very much trouble for a person, and it's clubfoot. And yet this is life-destroying for people in other areas. Can you kind of explain? Sure. You know, so often uh, in traveling in the developing world, you see people begging in the streets, uh, unable to walk, and that's because they have club foot. And in this country, about one, one in 1,000 people worldwide are born with club foot. In this country, you don't see them because they're corrected at birth. So we followed an uh, American in California named Shoshana Klein who sent a $250 contribution to an organization that deals with club foot. And we followed that money to a hospital in Niger where that money was used for a little girl named Rashida. And it gave her her life back. Here you had this girl who otherwise was destined to get no education, to never marry, to have no life other than being a beggar in the street. And that $250 contribution, uh, it completely transformed her life and is going to empower her so that she can contribute to society in ways that are, again, this isn't depressing. This is truly uplifting and inspiring. We know tools that will make a difference. There's a $40 surgery that corrects trachoma. And, you know, we saw this woman who'd been blind for years, unable to care for her children, some of them have died, and then she got this $40 surgery, and the bandages come off, and somebody asks her, you know, do you want us to help you away? And she says, get out of my way, I can see now. And, you know. Wow, she turned into a total jerk. <laughs> Five seconds. Um, I didn't really mean that, Nicholas Kristoff, Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, Nicholas, you have been in some pretty extreme environments in your career as a journalist. You've even been called the Indiana Jones of investigative journalism. And it seems to us in reading your work and admiring you that nothing seems to scare you. But we wanted to put that to the test. So we're going to give you some daunting scenarios. And you have to tell us if you're scared or if you're not scared. Okay, and to keep you honest, we have our own Andrew Harris here. Andrew... How much uh, medical training do you have in the Are People Scared department? Well, my grandmother was an anesthesiologist, and I'm wearing a necktie. Okay. So. That is, uh, and that's good enough for me. 
Uh, Andrew Harris is going to monitor your level of scaredness, Nicholas Kristoff, and we're going to have you play a game called What in the Heck Scares Nicholas Kristoff? What in the heck scares Nicholas Kristoff? Maybe it's a gun or a snake. They have to be somewhere later, so they didn't want to do a long version of the intro music. We're all kind of in a rush. All right, here we go. What the heck scares Nicholas Kristoff? I want your honest answer. Andrew, okay. how are you planning on monitoring this? You're going to make I'm going to be contact? taking his pulse, and I can see his level of perspiration. Do you know even where you like, put your hand to measure someone's pulse? Yeah, you just go... Yeah, yeah shoulder. That's good. That's right. Right on their shoulder pad of their suit. That's how doctors do it. All right, here we go. Nicholas Kristoff. What the heck scares you? You are covering a university protest. You're facing campus police in riot gear. They start tasering protesters, and you have to run 40 yards to get to your car, scared or not scared. Mm, not scared. Andrew? Yeah, just check the truth? your pulse right here. Um, I, he's actually scared. No, okay. I mean, I've been tased before. You can't run from a taser. Yeah. Uh, they Maybe he doesn't know enough to be scared because he hasn't been tased before. Possibly. Never been tased. There you go. Uh, Just willful ignorance it. on your part. Okay. Question number two. Scared or not scared, Nicholas Kristoff? You open up the milk carton, and it seems like it might have gone bad. <laughs> but you're kind of stuffed up, so you're not totally sure. And you've already poured your cereal into the bowl, so there's no backing out now. Scared or not scared? Terrified. <laughs> I'm not reading fright here. Um, I mean, if this was toothpaste where you clearly cannot put it back, then that would be one thing. But yeah. cereal can be put back into the box. So, wow. no. You have to stop lying to us, Nicholas, because <laughs> you're not going to get anything past Andrew Harris. <laughs> These are objective medical facts, Luke. All right, here we go. Nicholas Kristoff, what the heck scares you? You walk into a dark, abandoned mental institution with shuttered windows and graffiti that warns the devil will see you now. As you're walking down the hall, the moon shines through the broken window just enough for you to see an old, rusty gurney slowly making its way towards you with an old woman on it, ripping at her straitjacket, pointing at you and whispering, your soul already lives here. <laughs> scared or not scared? Totally scared. Have yeah. you ever reported on that sort of a thing? I've never had that interview, no. <laughs> It's a tough one to book. Andrew? <laughs> yeah, he's scared. Okay, okay. All right. And last but not least, Nicholas Kristoff, what the heck scares you? Your wife, fellow Pulitzer Prize winner, says to you, we really need to talk. <laughs> Cheryl is tough. So, um, no, Cheryl intimidates me sometimes. He says scared. Andrew Harris? It's off the charts, Luke. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that off is how charts. you play What the Heck Scares Nicholas Kristoff. What in the world scares Nicholas Kristoff? Maybe it's a milk or his wife. You are listening to Livewire from PRI. If you're planning to be in the Portland area, come to our next live taping Thursday... October 16th at Lincoln Hall at Portland State University. Our guests include para, uh, poet Derek Brown, comedian Shane Torres, music from Hook and Anchor, and also Modern Kin, plus many others. You know, tonight's show is all about venturing into the unknown, whether we know we're actually doing it or not, and our producer and head writer ventured into some unknown and probably unknowable territory a few months ago, and she is here to tell us about it. Please welcome Courtney Hameister to the stage. So in February, I joined OkCupid in a last-ditch effort not to die alone. And I thought I knew what was in store for me when I signed on, but it turned out that there was a world out there that I never thought I'd have anything to do with until I did. Over the course of seven months, I have dated 23 men, all of them very nice guys, uh, but none of them long-term material, either because I didn't see them that way or vice versa. All in all, pretty standard stuff. As we all know, dating is just a series of horrifying disappointments right up until it's not. <laughs> um, 
So as all of this is happening, I'm noticing more men are sending me messages who listed themselves as in a relationship in their profiles. And their missives always sort of have the same disclaimer. You know, once you read my profile, you may not be interested, but, or my favorite was, here's my wife's profile. She can send you a permission slip. And I had had friends in polyamorous relationships, but it never appealed to me. If you're not familiar with polyamory, you're about to be. All signs point to consensual, non-monogamous relationships being on the rise among those in their 30s and 40s, and it's pretty much the standard among college-age daters, according to Rolling Stone. Most poly couples have a primary relationship and then secondary, tertiary, or quaternary relationships based on how ambitious, exhausted, or prone to STDs they decide to be. So initially, I ignored the emails from poly people, but then I started thinking about it. The one time I was truly in love, I fell so deeply that I almost didn't survive when it ended. I felt like my torso had been permanently ripped open, and now the whole world was free to poke at my insides at will. One word from a cruel stranger on the street, one bad show review, one particularly poignant kitten video, and I was emotionally floored. And that just lasted way too long for my taste, so I thought if I dated someone I knew was taken, my brain wouldn't allow me to get too attached, and I would therefore be protected from any reflooring that might occur. It may have been the worst idea I've ever had. <laughs> Even so, sometimes the world rewards us for our bad decisions. That's what happened with Joe. Joe and his wife decided to try polyamory early in the year, and it had been going well. Exceptionally well for her, actually. What I keep hearing from poly friends is that in straight poly couples, the woman gets way more action than the men, which feels only logical, right? Men are generally happy to get sex however it comes, whereas women are far more likely to distrust a man who says he's in an open marriage or just not be okay with having sex with another woman's husband because women believe in relationship karma. But even so, Joe and I met for drinks in a pool hall, and then we, we played a couple games, and then we went to a second bar. His wife was also on a date at his house, so he needed to be out at least until that was over. Information I took in, hoping I had a look of detached nonchalance on my face, <laughs> when inside, I was totally holy shitting. <laughs> And he and I didn't have a ton in common. He works in tech, and I'm reasonably sure he golfs. But he was cute, <laughs> and he was sweet, and I enjoyed his company. And if he hadn't been married, he would have fit into the, you know, we should sleep together for a while until one of us starts to get too attached and then awkwardly part category. Uh, but since he was married, he fit into the, we should sleep together for a while until your wife says you can't anymore? How does this work? <laughs> category. And with Joe... I came for the curiosity, but weirdly, I stayed for the intimacy. After a heated rolling around sec session, once we'd had the appropriate number of dates, we were lying on my comforter laughing and talking, and Joe did the most unexpected thing. He took my hand, and as we continued talking, he softly ran his other hand up and down my forearm. Everything about this relationship had been casual, but he'd suddenly leapt into the brand of casual intimacy that usually only comes after you truly know someone. And after thinking about it, it made sense to me. He was married, so of, of course he was comfortable with physical and emotional intimacy. He'd agreed to a lifetime of it. With someone else, sure, but that's really splitting hairs. <laughs> As he was leaving, he asked me, is this awkward for you? Are you okay? Two very uncomfortable questions that have a high probability of not getting the response he was hoping for. It wasn't awkward, and I was okay, but it was lovely to be asked. Yet another thing Joe was adept at was having difficult conversations. His decision to become polyamorous had forced him to have so many of them with his wife that he'd become a pro. And I know the lives of secondary relationships are generally short, and I'm fine with that. As much as I enjoyed it, I know in the long run it's not for me, mostly because I've been brainwashed by romantic comedies, and this is never the happy ending. So until someone makes When Harry Met Sally and Sally's Open-Minded Friend Who Works as a Cheesemonger at Whole Foods, I'll still be looking. But I'm glad I went down this road because I've judged polyamorous couples in the past, and they're really not so different from me. We're all fumbling through this as best we can, trying to figure out how to be happy with ourselves and make someone else happy instead of accidentally slathering them in our misery. Monogamy is hard. Polyamory is hard because relationships are hard, which is why it's so strange that we spend our lives clamoring to get into them. 
It's been a weird few months of clamoring for me, but it's worth it because at least now I've clarified why I'm going through all this. I'm in it for the hand-holding. That was Courtney Hameister, and you are listening to Livewire Radio from PRI, brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, whose milk is free of RBST because while recombinant bovine somatropin sounds delicious, strangely may not be all that great for you. Whole Foods Market, eat as promised. More information can be found at eataspromised.com. And now, Livewire presents the recently discovered first draft of Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both. I took the one less traveled by, and now I'm completely freaking lost, and I'm sure I'm being followed by a wolf, or a, or a cougar, or a panther. Is panther a thing in America? I don't know. It seems like a panther. And I'm totally wearing the wrong shoes for this. That was the first draft of Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken, read by our own Andrew Harris. Well, our next guest, Mike Pesca, was a total unknown in radio until the age of 10 when he called into a New York sports radio station to give his opinion of the New York Jets. He's been offering up his opinions on stuff ever since on shows like On the Media, Talk of the Nation, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. His new project is an amazing daily podcast called The Gist. Please welcome Mike Pesca to Live Wire. made a huge leap recently from a sports reporter, staff reporter at NPR, uh, to hosting a, uh, a weekday daily podcast that's uh, created by Slate called mm-hmm. The Gist. Right. And I am just such a fan of, of your show. I listen to it each and every day. And one of the things I love about it is that I always find out about some topic that you have focused on that day that is not the thing I got out of bed. Yeah thinking I had an interest in hearing about yeah. on that particular day. And what I thought we could do is I could fire some of these recent gist topics at okay. you, and you could give us, for the people who missed the show, and by the way, how dare you, for those of you who missed that episode of the gist, you can kind of catch them up. Okay. Can we try that? Sure. Okay. Um, naps. Do they help or hurt a person's health and productivity? Okay, so this is part of an ongoing segment we have, a science segment called Is That Bullshit? And we have acclaimed science writer Maria Konnikova, and we play Is That Bullshit? And she really convinced me that naps can be good if everything about them is perfect. If you have the sort of circadian rhythm or whatever science term she used, that you could go on and off and shut it on and off perfectly. Also, if you come out of it not too short, where you get no benefit, but not too long. Because if you nap, if you overnap, then your rhythms are screwed up. So... In essence, except for the talented 10% of nappers, naps are bullshit. I... Um, All right, what happened when someone pulled the most elaborate bomb planting in history in a Reno, Nevada casino? It worked. Blew a hole in the casino. It was a thousand-pound bomb. I mean, the 70s were so screwed up. I've also talked about how screwed up the 70s were. Like, we forget this. Maybe if you're... Under 30, you never lived it. But if you're 40, like I am, 41, like dams were breaking, like dozens of people died, like every week from a dam breaking, skyjackings. And yeah, some guy actually blew a hole in a casino and they spent years finding him and they still teach the bomb in the FBI because it was so elaborately conceived. And what was he trying to do with this? Uh, I don't know. He, they made him hit on a soft 17. I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, actually. <laughs> oh, man. Four people liked that joke, but they really liked it. And I was, by the way, three of them. Um, he had a beef with the casino. He was both a brilliant guy and an angry guy who also was great at making bombs, but not really good at much else. Um, and he almost got away with it, too, right? If it wasn't for those meddling kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mr. Baumgartner. <laughs> they unmasked him. <laughs> why are we, um, why are we seeing the decline of the pop song? Well, the fade out is uh, declining. And the reason the fade out is declining, and this is very interesting, is because when you, uh, <laughs> people will think they're That's great because that's up. the radio equivalent of a sight gag. <laughs> that is actually the one thing that works better on radio than on TV. I am actually doing an interview with a guy who wrote a book about things that aren't funny anymore. And Please tell me he did not mention this show and or my monologues. No, no, no. Because I've already been on a few lists and I don't enjoy it. No, no, no Luke, anymore. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cursing you, but... <laughs> cover, but cover of the book of things that aren't funny anymore, Anvil falling on someone's head. And it's true. Is that because we now understand just how bad that would be for your brain? Yeah. Like the traumatic... Right. I mean, I, exactly. I, I say this without even... Back uh, in the 40s, we thought it built character. Right. Um, no, but I'm being serious. I was raised on anvils. What, anvils aren't good enough for you? Here's an anvil. <laughs> I, at some point, and you'll know this as you guys get to know Mike, at some point it always turns into the premise for a Bruce Springsteen song. <laughs> the father, whose the son doesn't think the anvils are good enough. Anvils, they were born to fall. <laughs> um, it is true. But that is why, right? Honestly, we understand now how bad that would be, so it, it's not funny to us, because we're like, oh, they'd be dead if that happened. <laughs> Is that why that's I not guess, considered but like, funny? You, I, you know what? My kids watch a lot of cartoons, and like the whole skirting death thing is eliminated for, from cartoons. Now it's like an intermingling of Spanish phrases. That has, right. that is, that is replaced. Dora the Explorer yeah. has zero anvil right. interactions. All right, back to the, back to the fade out. Why Boots, is the fade boots, out? on the other hand. Fading um, out. I think it's just trends. And, you know, I think, uh, what was the year? Maybe 1984. Of the top ten songs that ended the year, every single one had a fade out. The last three, four Give years... Give me an example, if you remember, one of those songs. Um, and the band is going to play it. I think it's... I think probably Let's Get Physical. Guys, I, on three. One, two... That song does not end with yeah. a fade out. Oh, does it? It's weird when you... When you listen on the radio, you don't realize the song is all drums. Yeah. And so, light vocals. It sounds different. You know, so many songs that seem, as I pointed out, the song Not Fade Away ends in a fade out. So, like, every song ended in a fade out. And I think, I think it just the... I, you know, I think it's just trends, and now there's been, I think, an overcorrection. And so in the last three years, if you look at all the songs that have ended top ten, that... Um, Blurred Lines is literally the only of the last 30, 10 most popular songs every year that ended in a fade out for Robin Thicke's career and for Noah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you can add uh, to that list of things that used to happen a lot and don't happen any longer? TV intro theme songs. That tell the story. That tell the story yeah, of yeah, how yeah. Mr. Belvedere ended up with this family. Yeah. And I, I attribute that to attention span yeah. and also the ability to change the channel. Like, if the remote control hadn't have been invented, we would still be sitting through the theme songs, but they're terrified that you'll get bored and change the channel, so they just get right to it. I think that uh, maybe they assume that we're all second screening it and Googling, well, what's the backstory on this? Right. And we got a Wikipedia page open. But also in the 70s, another weird TV theme song was, trend was, all these horribly depressing shows with these jaunty theme songs. Oh, yeah. Like Sanford and Son? That seemed fun. The guy lives in a junkyard. I'm coming, Elizabeth. He just wants to die. And they were all like that. And then then there's Maud. She's a horribly depressed person. But then there's Maud. <laughs> what about, I don't know if the theme song was upbeat, but whoever successfully pitched a sitcom about a Nazi prison camp. Yeah. That's pretty, that's incredible. Like, wait, 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 stay with me. They're hilarious Nazis and they're pretty incompetent. Can we, can we throw in some humor against the French too? Sure. Oh yeah, that'll yeah. sell it. Yeah. Uh, Mike Pesca, I know nothing. A lot of this show, too, if you don't know, is just me badly impersonating lines from Hogan's Heroes. So you're welcome. Um, Mike, uh, last question. What can you do with your podcast, The Gist, uh, that you weren't able to do on NPR? Curse like a sailor. Well, I'm encouraged to now. In fact, I have a quota to meet. They don't tell you that. It eventually starts to feel like pressure, doesn't it? 
Podcasts are really, uh, people feel them really personally, so I could go niche and I don't have to do the thing where I slow down and say, Bono, the lead singer of U2. So there's no... You actually singer. did an entire um, <laughs> sort of, uh, what would you call it? Was it officially a spiel? It which... might have been a spiel. This is the uh, signature ending of the show that goes where on. Where you talked about the fact that minutes. when you listen to public radio, yeah. you, they make everybody explain who everybody is all the time. Right, right. And it's very hard because I'm, I'm sure there are some elements of the audience, but whenever I hear something I don't know, I mean, I just think of myself as a listener, I don't say, damn you for introducing knowledge that I didn't know already. Like, that's why I'm listening to public radio. So, yeah, so there's a little bit, you know, I, I maybe talk a little too quickly. I'm perhaps at times daring the audience to uh, keep up with me. Um, there's, there's more of a kinship. It's, you know, I allow myself to be really niche, and the thing I always say is, you know, if I'm not pissing someone off, I'm not doing it right now. I don't mean to be specifically pressing buttons, but I want to say things, like the number one thing isn't first don't offend, and I do think with public radio there's a little bit of that, right? There's a little bit of the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic Oath? <laughs> Hypocritical? Yeah. I mean, I guess if you were criticizing somebody who had killed somebody else, but you had also killed someone, that would be a <laughs> hypocritic, Hippocratic Oath. Right. Boy, that was labored. <laughs> Right, like, if there was a dude with a t-shirt that says, do harm, and he was the guy giving you the oath, that would be the hypocritic, yeah. hypocritic oath, yeah. <laughs> Mike Pesca, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right, that was the gist's own Mike Pesca. And you've been listening to Livewire Radio from PRI. It's been a fun hour. Curious, what we learned, gang? Band leader Ralph Huntley, what'd you learn? Well, I learned tonight what a generous, open-hearted, beautiful person Bill Frizzell is. Nice. And what an honor having him on the show. Absolutely. Announcer Jason Rouse, what have you picked up in the last hour or so? Well... Nicholas Kristof uh, was, was amazing, and he was described as being a, a, the Indiana Jones of journalists. And I thought, what am I the Indiana Jones of? And then I heard Mike Pesca, and I realized it's napping. I'm the Indiana Jones of napping. Because I can get in there and find a sweet rhythm within 15 seconds. Case in point, I spent most of this show in a chair thinking. I was asleep. I feel like $100. So, Luke, what about you? I want to just, because we got him on stage and he's got a microphone over there. And he's obviously quick on the draw when it comes to questions and answers. Bill Frizzell, you learn anything tonight being here? I'm always learning something. I am. Um, I've had my mind blown a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. I, uh, for all of the Indiana Jones-esque reporting that that Nick Kristoff has done, the story that terrifies him the most is still the story of his wife being mad at him. And I, um, well, I don't know how to feel about that. I'm excited though that we've got one more song from Bill Frizzell. Please welcome him back to the Livewire stage. Thank you. 
That's Bill Frizzell. Right here on Livewire Radio, this episode dedicated to the memory of Portland legend Linda Hornbuckle. Our thanks to our guests, Mike Pesca, Nicholas Kristoff, and Bill Frizzell. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Robin Tenenbaum is the co-creator and executive producer of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is our head writer and a producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom and musical director Ralph Huntley. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, along with Alex Falcone and me. Our performers are Sean McGrath and Andrew Harris. Graham Nystrom is our technical director. House sound by Neil Blake. Stage management by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Work for Art, the Oregon Community Foundation, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, the Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. And listeners like you find people. For more information about the show or becoming a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.